This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we're speaking with Dr. Mimi Cook. My interest is how do we actually make space for unwellness that we're not allowed to talk about? How do we make sense of it? And then how do we care for each other in all of that unwellness? Recognizing that I'm unwell, you're unwell. We're unwell in different ways sometimes, but sometimes also very similar ways. And that sort of broke down the uh, power relationship and hierarchy between professor and student for me quite a bit in asking that they recognize my unwellness as I recognize their unwellness. Mimi Cook is a writer, scholar, and teacher of things unwell, and visiting professor in disability studies at Georgetown University. She is the managing editor of the Asian American Literary Review and guest editor of Open and Emergency, a special issue on Asian American mental health. She is very slowly working on several book projects, including a manifesto on contingency in Asian American studies and essays on mental health the arts, and the university. But mostly, she spends her time baking as access and care for herself and loved ones. Dr. Cook, I am so grateful to have you here today. I'm really looking forward to being in deep conversation as spring is awakening around us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk as well. I I love talking about mental health, so I'm glad to have the opportunity with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Such a deeply important topic, especially at this moment. And I thought it might be helpful to ground this interview in your practice by reading a tarot card from your open and emergency collection that spoke to me, if that's all right with you. Ah, oh, that's great. Yes. Okay. So everyone... Just to say this is challenging because there's so many good ones, but I'm going to start with the farmer because it just feels Mm. very of this moment, especially for me in this spring season. Quote, the farmer is the 10th card of the major arcana. She is an observer of both micro and macro shifts in energy and impacts her wisdom to those willing to put in sweat equity and passion about growth and change. Sometimes mistaken for an unskilled laborer to be exploited The farmer is highly skilled with generations of knowledge to impart. Though the most familiar image of the farmer is of big ag and industrial growers, this image highlights the small-scale non-GMO grower whose mission is keep seed, soil, and community health. The farmer holds tools of the trade, a shovel, and nanla. This indicates the time it takes to acquire knowledge, reminding us we must develop skills rather than assume they are preordained. The farmer is practical, hair pulled back, long sleeve shirt, bleached by sun, 
sturdy work pants, and head covering. While deeply connected to the pulse of the earth, she is also a thoughtful risk taker, using observation, generational knowledge, and intuition to cultivate and prosper. The farmer is always an indicator of personal and communal growth. Like the three sisters who bloom in harmony, corn provides stock for beans to climb, making a trellis for sister squash. This card in the tarot can indicate that to regain your strength, you must equally provide it to others. And that was written by Simi Kong. Yes. Oh gosh. So just want to like take a moment for listeners to sit with that. And then when you're ready, I would just love to hear how this card speaks to our current moment and dreams for a changed future. Thank you so much for that beautiful reading. So yes, the text was written by Simi Kang, who is a scholar and eco-justice organizer and dear friend of mine. The artwork on the front of the card, which listeners cannot see, is an ink and watercolor black and white image of a farmer. Um, and that was also actually drawn by Simi Kang, who's a visual artist as well. I love that you picked this card. And I actually love it for, I love this card for many reasons. I think our relationship to farming, to the earth, is quite complex historically. And I think Simi here, this card is trying to draw on different kind of historical moments and different communities and how they've navigated creating food, creating space, how they've navigated the uh, industry of food as well, and how that's kind of devastated certain communities. But what, I, what I'm leaving with, and, and I'll say with my tarot cards, there's like no right or wrong interpretation or answer. It really is what speaks to you in the moment. And in this moment, I actually love the very, very last line that you read. This card in the tarot can indicate that to regain your strength, you must equally provide it to others. I love that because I feel like we often think about self-care or even therapy or even medicine, right, as an individual kind of issue where we have an individual pathology and then we treat ourselves in some way, we take care of ourselves in some way. And I love this framing of care as reciprocal and collective. And so much of my work grounds its ideas about both wellness and unwellness in collective, in the collective structures of care and interdependence, meaning the ways that we lean on each other. So I love that this feels actually kind of prescient. Uh, when I read this card now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I love how the themes that you spoke about are brought into ritual through the cards. And I think that gives us space to reflect on these themes in a different way that I really appreciate. Mm. Because I think it's really easy to get lost in the overwhelmed of what's not working and overwhelmed in how we can make things feel more healing. And so I, I think, right. Because um, everything feels like it's on fire yes, <laughs> all yes. the time. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And how do we find agency in that? Right. When yeah. like everything is going wrong around us, mm -hmm. um, especially right now in this kind of acute crisis of the pandemic or this ongoing acute yeah. crisis of the pandemic, how do we, take care of ourselves and each other in this moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that brings me to wonder about the title, Open in Emergency. And I 
I wonder if you could speak to how you came to that title for this tarot deck. And it feels like it's speaking to some of the themes you just brought up. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. So open emergency is a, I like to call it a hybrid book arts project. Um, It's not quite a book. It's a box with cool stuff in it, including a tarot deck uh, that I curated. And I first published this project in 2016 and I republished a second edition um, in 2019, 2020. And the, the idea of the project was to engage mental health in new ways, to think about what is the, what are the conditions of wellness and unwellness for Asian Americans in particular. The project focuses on Asian American mental health. And how do we find new languages to capture what hurts, to capture all the ways that we are unwell, beyond the kind of limitations of psychological and psychiatric discourse, especially how do we think about race and colonialism, right, and empire and other forms of structural violence that deeply shape our sense of wellness and unwellness. So I curated this project with a bazillion contributors, uh, uh, probably around 80, which I do not recommend anyone do ever Uh, It's a lot of people to corral and a lot of stuff to have to um, logistically handle. But people were amazing and contributed amazing things in it, like this card that we just read, in order to try to figure out from the with the tools that they had how to diagnose our unwellness, how to think about ways of healing, how to think about ways of caring for each other. So I decided to name the project Open an Emergency because it was a box, and some people have called it like a like a self care kit which I, I like. I don't call it that, but I like that people call it that. I like that people think of it as a tool. It's a box that you open with stuff in it that's supposed to help give you language. It's supposed to help you engage in finding new language on your own as well. And you open it when you need help. So I thought of the idea of, you know, we have like open an emergency, open in case of emergency, random things, right? That we're supposed to open when it's an emergency, <laughs> like the uh, emergency fire extinguisher and things like that. Well, for mental health, what is the emergency? Where is the emergency? And if you look at communities of color and other marginalized communities, we are always in crisis. It's always an emergency because we're always dealing with historical and cultural structures that are harming us. And so care shouldn't just be when we are um, in the hospital, for instance. Care should be ongoing all the time for all the ways that we are dealing with unwellness and wellness And so I named the box as a care kit, like open an emergency, you open it when you need help, but with the framing that it's actually always an emergency, it's already an emergency. You should have already been engaging these kinds of arts tools for your and your community's wellness. Yeah, thank you for speaking to that. And I was watching your TEDx talk titled, The Revolution is in the Heart, and Mm. You say we can use, quote, feeling as a political, ethical, and spiritual method, end quote. And I'm interested in the ways you see feeling used in contemporary frameworks and the path we might take to feel more deeply and to even decolonize our frameworks of feeling. Yes. Oh, I love the language. I love you saying decolonize our frameworks of feeling. Yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to get at. I think we sort of have a sense that our ideas or our thoughts are shaped 
socially, right? Like we think certain things, we believe in certain things in part uh, because of our socialization. But I think a lot of people don't realize that we feel things because of our socialization as well. Our feelings are actually quite structured by what we think we're allowed and not allowed to feel, what kinds of feelings are nurtured, what kinds of feelings are supposedly appropriate or not appropriate responses to things, right? Like, like uh, what is being, you know, is anger an appropriate response according, and according to whom and who gets to say, right? Um, what are people feeling now during the pandemic? Are we focusing on um, grief? Are we allowing people to have space to mourn all the different things that we've lost in this pandemic? And so I think of feeling quite as political because feel our feelings live in a web structured by rules about what we're allowed and not allowed to feel. And so deeper feeling requires then we understand what those rules are. We have to investigate what those rules are and evaluate whether they actually serve us or not. Do the rules around us deaden our feelings? Do they push our feelings in certain directions and not others? How do we expand our sense of feeling? How do we find new ways of feeling that move us possibly towards a more ethical way of being in the world. And I like to think that I create spaces of feeling as part of my work. So this project should, you know, elicit feeling through folks, in folks. But I also do a lot of talks and workshops live time and in in these times on Zoom a lot, uh, where I try to create spaces of vulnerability and feeling because I think that when we can be vulnerable, access our feelings, share our feelings collectively, that is when we're actually being honest about all the ways that we're unwell instead of pretending that we're well. There's a lot of pressure to pretend that we're okay. Uh, I call that compulsory wellness. We have to pretend we're okay, that we have our shit together, that we can do everything because if we don't, we think something's wrong with us. We're told that something's wrong with you if you you know, aren't productive or um, aren't handling things or aren't resilient. I also hate that word, resilient. So if we allow ourselves, give ourselves permission and each other to say that we're not okay, that stuff is hard, that we don't know what to do, then we can actually start caring for those things. Because if we're in denial that we're feeling those things, we can't build the care that we need. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking about the ways in which capitalism and productivity is directly connected to us needing to fake it till we make it or something Mm -hmm. like that. Yep. Yep. Because the dominant culture, they want us to be well enough to be productive, to keep the machine going, but they want us to be sick enough so that we are buying the shit we don't need or want or fulfills us. So it's a, it's kind of an abusive relationship. Oh my God. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's interesting to think about that push and pull. And that, that push and that push and pull works together when you privatize care, right? And individualized care. So be like you're saying, be well enough to work, define wellness through work, right? You're only sick if you can't work, apparently. Um, but then if you need care, right, be sick enough that you will access kind of uh, commodified forms of care for yourself. So self-care via things you can buy, via programs that you can access. And it not actually be a structural condition or a structure that 
the collective provides, right? It becomes an individual kind of relationship with capitalist forms of care. Yeah, I'm thinking about a thread on this tapestry we're speaking to, which is pathologizing unwellness or mental illness. And I see the necessity and the power in admitting that we're not well and not sitting in denial so that we can find healing. And at the same time, within the dominant culture's framework of institutionalized healthcare, I see that so many of us are pathologized into being not well, but in a way that ostracizes us or makes us feel not right or something. And so Mm -hmm. I want to speak to the nuance between accepting our unwellness, Mm -hmm. but not feeling like we are being pathologized and put into boxes that then uh, Mm, it's it's sensitive to find the words for this, but I I hope you know where I'm going. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I I actually think you're touching on a couple of key tensions um, when we're thinking about being unwell and claiming unwellness and admitting that we're unwell. Because on the one hand, like you're saying, it shouldn't be pathologized, right? It should be totally fine to be unwell because honestly, we are all unwell. And that's a a core point of my work is that we are all differentially unwell. We're unwell in different ways at different times. Um, We're all going to get sick and die. Sorry to break it to folks, but you will die (laughs) at some point, right? And so unwellness is, is built into our experience of life but we pathologize it. Like we were saying earlier, we feel that we're supposed to be well and we perform that wellness often through productivity and the ability to work and feeling like we're uh, independent and uh, self, you know, self-actualized, self-reliant. But the tension is in the ways that structures actually make us unwell as well, right? Structures of violence make us unwell. The way we have to navigate lots of awful laws and institutions um, and forces, cultural forces around us make us unwell too. So how do you balance between recognizing the structures that make you unwell and accepting that you're unwell? Because I don't want to accept all the awful structures that make me unwell, right? So I try to think about the the human condition as one of navigating unwellness at all times but different people have to navigate it in different ways because of their relationship to different structures of power, if that makes sense. So there are things around us that disable us and things around us that enable us. And so how, how, what, are, what are the ways in which we are disabled by our environment? And what are the ways that we are enabled by our environment? And how do we navigate those things? And how do we not pathologize illness, pain, unwellness, while also trying to create structures that enable us to have better lives as well. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking through what I learned from movements for disability justice, and I'm particularly drawn to the fluid, compassionate, and interpersonal work of theories and methods like spoon theory. Yes. A visualization of how energy and capacity varies from person to person and from day to day. So on this note, I'm wondering if you can offer an explanation of how this theory shapes worldviews and 
how embracing neurodiversity might bring us into a new realm of Mm. being with and understanding the world. Mm, Yes. Thank you so much for bringing up spoon theory. Um, I I love spoon theory. My students, my students love spoon theory when I teach to them. Um, So spoon theory, uh, when I did my own research into it, found that it was started by, and and I might mispronounce this person's name, um, Christine Miserandino. in a essay where they're trying to explain their experience of lupus to a friend who does not have lupus and how they have to manage their energy, figure out what their capacity is, make very hard decisions about how to spend, expend that energy, uh, the very limited amount of energy they have throughout the day. And so certain things take a certain number of spoons, right? Um, and you may even overextend yourself and then have to borrow spoons from the next day. And then the next day you feel like shit because you've use too many spoons and now you have to figure out how to replenish your spoons. So my students love this language for thinking about their own limits and capacities, whether or not they identify as disabled. And that's for me actually what is most useful about spoon theory as a disability justice framework, because it allows all of us to think about ourselves as having limits. We have limits, even though people seem to want to tell us that we shouldn't have any limits on our capacities, we should be able to do everything, right? No, we all have limits. We have different limits. Like you said, depending on the day, depending on our health, depending on the things that are required of us in a particular given moment. And so recognizing that we have a limited capacity gives us permission to say something is too much or to say I'm unwell because I don't have any more capacity for that. So my students love it because it gives them language to think about how, the, how they're basically their institutions, their universities are asking too much of them. And it also gives them a way to be agents about their own capacities and well-being, if that makes sense. Like they can actually touch base with themselves a little better. They can check in with themselves. How, many, how you know, how, what is my capacity right now? Can I do that? And then it gives them language to communicate shorthand with somebody else. Oh, I don't have the spoons for that right now. And another person understands without having to come up with a particular reason or an, or an excuse or rely on someone else's sense of what is legitimate reason to do or not do something, if that makes sense. Like the language of spoons allows all of us to kind of take back our personhood and not be simply there for productivity, but there as a person with needs, limits, how do we navigate both limits and needs individually, but also collectively. Mm -hmm. Oh, that was really helpful for me personally to hear you explain that. I mean, so much of, so much of disability justice, right, is the acknowledgement that we all have needs and that all, (laughs) right, that we all have needs and those needs deserve to be met. We have the right to have our needs met. How do we do that collectively? How do we build things that meet everybody's needs as much as possible? How do we negotiate? Because people's needs may be different, right, in a, in a community. How do we figure out how to meet some needs and how do we um, iterate it? Because needs change over time as well. And so this recognition of needs, I think, is something that we deny <laughs> outside of disability justice often. Um, and, and so this is why disability justice informs my work in mental health, recognizing that we all have mental health needs. So then how do we meet those needs? Instead of thinking about mental health simply as like, either you're okay or you have mental illness that's diagnosed, right? But we tend to think of mental health that way. 
do you or do you not have a mental illness? If you have a mental illness that's diagnosed, that's labeled, then you can get treatment. And that treatment may be, you know, um, psychotherapy or it may be psychiatric and uh, pharmaceutical or some other forms of treatment possibly. Um, instead of thinking about all of us as having the capacity for needing mental health support, we are all, we all have feelings, <laughs> we all have thoughts. And so shouldn't we have support for those things at all times? I'm thinking about an interview you did for Living Under Siege, which was conducted by Jen Hart. And this may be a direct quote. I I wrote it down quickly. It also may be a generalization of something you said, but it's something like, my work in mental health has made me realize that we are all also inherently vulnerable, all differentially unwell all struggling with varying levels and kinds of hardships, crises. For me, religion and mental health are inextricably tied. I just want to hone in on that last sentence, which um, is saying that religion and mental health are inextricably tied. And I'd really love to hear you dive into that a bit more because I have my own feelings and thoughts on that. And I'd love to riff with you. Oh, thank you for asking that. Not many people key in on that and ask me about that. Um, so it, I will have a, I will give a confession um, since we're talking about religion. Uh, I, my training, my um, formal training is actually in religious studies. I have a PhD in religious studies and I actually shifted to doing work in mental health uh, after I got my PhD and, and kind of have built my career around mental health since then. But mental health and religion actually are not always connected for most people, but it was very clear to me because of my training in religious studies and approaching religion, not simply as an institution or a set of beliefs. That's how some people define religion, right? As a church or as a, a, a set of beliefs or a set of practices. Um, for me, studying religion showed me that religion is an inherent part of life where we try to make sense of the world, right? It's meaning making. That's sort of how I boil it down to. And so 
meaning making to me seems inherently a, a part of our mental health. How do we make sense of the shit around us? How do we make sense of our relationship to the world, to each other, to a sense of something maybe beyond this world? All of that is a kind of religious uh, imagination or element of our lives. And it should connect and does connect deeply to our feeling life and our thinking life as well. Like they're not really easily separable, I think, our spirituality and our thinking and our feeling, they all work together. Yeah. I also don't mention this, but I was a theology major. And I, <laughs> so I, I really feel connected to that intersection. And I absolutely think that we are in a spiritual crisis and that is directly mm. connected to resource extraction and addiction and consumer culture and exploitation of others and ourselves. And so mm. I am really grateful you bring this up because I think that it's hard for many of us to be able to connect to religion or a collective spiritual mm -hmm. community um, because religion, organized religion has been so problematic for so many and has mm -hmm. created a lot of pain globally. And then many of us here in the United States where I'm calling in from, we are kind of orphaned from mm. our ancestry, which includes spirituality and a connection to different earth-based religions in our past. So for those of us who are a bit lost, I can see how it would be hard to claim organized religion. And it would also right. be hard to claim some other spirituality that might look like cultural appropriation. Right, and right. So, you know, and then I feel like some of us are left standing in this limbo between the discomfort with organized religion and not wanting to culturally appropriate somebody else's yes. connection to spirit. And so where do we go? I think, of course, we can find spirituality within ourselves and with the land. And I, I know I've been on more of that individual journey, but I think at some point it can get lonely to mm, just try mm -hmm. to continue connecting to spirit by oneself. And so I just want to leave that there for you and see if we can get into the weeds yeah. of how we find connection to spirituality or collective community. Worship, I know, could also be a triggering word, but yeah, yeah something yeah. we do together that feels yeah. like we're connecting to something divine. I, I really appreciate uh, what you've laid out. I think you're spot on. And I, I love you calling it a, a spiritual crisis using that language and the two kind of forces or the two kind of options that you're, or is it options or tensions maybe that you're pointing out, right? The, the difficulties some people might have with organized religions, maybe of origin, like of their families, but then also how to connect to maybe other things that are not organized religion, but do they actually belong to you? Are you allowed to connect to it, right? This, this question of cultural appropriation, what does it mean to mine our own histories or other people's histories for uh, spirituality? So then what do you do, right? I heard you say the kind of search individually can feel lonely and really hard. I actually think this is why Tara was having a resurgence 
I feel like, so, you know, you read the tarot card that I curated at the beginning of this. When I was curating the tarot cards, I was coming across many, many different reimagined tarot decks. And that's, it's actually only proliferated since then of folks trying to engage tarot practice in new ways. And then I had to look into like, well, what is the historical roots of tarot practice? And I found out that they originally were Italian medieval playing cards. So they weren't even used for spirituality originally. They were just like our 52 card deck to play with and then eventually became repurposed or reclaimed for divination purposes. Fast forward now, I think to the last maybe, I don't know, 10 years, I'm seeing tarot grow more and more, especially in, I would say, communities of color, queer communities of color, queer and trans folks particularly. And I'm not a sociologist or a social scientist and I haven't done like surveys, but my sense of things from having conversations with people who are engaging my tarot deck is that that has become a practice in part because of people's search for meaning and ways of engaging it and not just engaging it individually, but like you're saying, collectively. So there are communities around tarot, right? Um, There are people who love giving tarot readings to each other. They are people who consult tarot. And also I think astrology has had a comeback too, um, of ways of making sense of their lives in conversation with other people. And I think that's partly what drew people to my tarot deck as well. So when I reimagined the tarot for my project, I did it with Asian American experience and Asian American studies or knowledge making in mind, because I wanted to think about what kind of tarot I could create using tools that we have in our community that could reflect my community of Asian Americans. And wouldn't that make a better set of tools for divination or for meeting making if we drew upon our own experiences and knowledges. And then when I made the deck, I have found that people have really engaged in it, engaged with it in so many different ways. Some, yes, for personal kind of divination purposes, some for teaching and pedagogical purposes, um, some for community connection purposes, some for making sense of like the real structural violence that happens in our lives, because that's threaded throughout the deck. Um, Each card taps into certain kinds of forces that shape our lives historically. And those all kind of mix together for me as like ways of trying to feed ourselves and nurture ourselves spiritually in connection with others with new languages and new practices, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's reminding me of an interview claiming unwellness that you did Asian American writers workshop. And I am interested in something you were saying about how you approach these cards by drawing on Asian American categories. And you were saying we created the refugee, the migrant and the ghost and that your favorite card is the student. And I'm wondering if you could touch on these different cards and how they came to be and what was your thought process in that intersectional framework that you were creating? Yeah. So, you know, for those who are familiar with tarot, the major arcana is um, a list of 22 archetypes. And when I went through them in my curation process, I basically said, well, let's start backwards. If I was thinking about Asian American experience, what would those archetypes be? 
And so I came up with a, uh, my own list, and this was in conjunction with my partner, Lawrence Minbui Davis, um, who is the co-founder uh, of the Asian American Literary Review and, and worked on this project with me. And the list that we came up with, because both of us do Asian American studies and work in Asian American arts and community, included things like the refugee. Both of us actually come out of refugee backgrounds. Our families are Vietnamese American. And it made total sense to have a card that would not only capture the refugee experience, but help us thinking about what forces shape that experience that also imbricate people who are not refugees, right? Because we want people to pull pull these cards and use them and find meaning in them, even if you are not a refugee. And so then we had to think about, if we're talking about that card in particular, who could theorize this card? Who could write this card in a way that could capture some of that that we're looking for? And the person we came up with, uh, oh, and I have to say that this tarot deck, my tarot deck comes with text, which is unusual. Most tarot cards do not come with text. They only have an image and a archetype title. Um, but because we were renaming the archetypes, it felt important to have text that actually explain what the card means and how, what to do with it. So the person we chose for the refugee is a scholar and artist named Mimi Ting Lin, uh, who does ref critical refugee studies. She's a professor at UIUC, Urbana-Champaign. And I had encountered her work and found that she was in her work discussing the refugee experience and locating it in much larger context than simply the usual ways we think about refugees as people who flee places and then go somewhere else. It's kind of the very simplistic idea about refugees. Um, she was locating refugee experience in the context of war, empire, uh, colonialism, but also compulsory gratitude and debt. Right, the idea that like refugees are supposed to be grateful for being saved, uh, even though refugees are are created by conditions of war, often by the places that we end up going to, like for instance, Vietnamese Americans coming to the U.S. because the U.S. was involved in Vietnam, right? So like, what the fuck are we grateful for? <laughs> but the language of gratitude shapes refugee experience so much. So I wanted to, her to express all of that in this card in a new language that would be more accessible to folks who may never read her book, for instance, her academic book, but might read this tarot card and find some, some kind of connection to it. So the other cards you named, um, I think you might have named the, actually, I don't remember what you named, but like maybe the foreigner and the model minority. And other the ghost. And the ghost, yes, as other categories that make sense for us from uh, coming out of Asian American experience. And then you mentioned the student card. So I definitely want to talk about the student card. So the student card is a card that we came up with in the expanded second edition, in part because we didn't have one in the first edition, and it increasingly made sense to try to capture the student experience as I was traveling around meeting students all over the country to talk about mental health once the first edition was published. Um, I met at, a, at probably thousands of students at this point over the last few years talking about their own mental health experiences. Students are craving mental health resources and mental health conversations. That became very clear to me as I was getting invitations to places and facilitating these kinds of conversations. And so I wanted to capture what student unwellness and student striving and student struggle looked like for the second edition. Obviously, I am no longer a student, so I couldn't write this card. Uh, but I also didn't want to put it on 
one lone student to have to try to represent, you know, all student experience. So I decided, we decided, I and Lawrence decided to make this a collective card in that we actually started soliciting submissions uh, with various prompts along my speaking tour. So at places I visited, I would ask students to write some things down, some ideas, jot some stuff down in discussions around their experiences, and then they would share them with me. And then I assembled a student editorial team to kind of go through all of that raw material and start crafting this card. And then I and Lawrence helped to finalize this card. And then since then, I've actually presented this card to students as I continue to speak in other places. Um, And it's been really amazing to watch them engage with the card and kind of tell me, does it speak to their experience? Does it help them make sense of their experience? Does it um, capture what it means to be a student in these times? And this card was made in 2019. uh, And I've brought it around and showed it to students throughout the pandemic. And it's actually quite wild because I think the student experience during the pandemic has shifted a lot, but this card still somehow manages to capture some of that experience. Can, can I read the card? Yes, please. Yes? Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. So I'll give a quick visual description as well. So the front of the card is a black and white uh, ink brush image of, uh, of many students kind of stacked on top of each other. There's one student at the bottom bent over with other students on top of them, and they're all kind of holding different kind of student paraphernalia. So books, laptop, graduation cap, um, an abacus that's falling apart. And it has a number 29 at the top and the word the student at the bottom. And then on the back of the card is white text over teal background. And I will read the card. The student is the 29th card in the major arcana, sometimes known as the lost card. The student cried the day of graduation. They play one role for the mother, another for schools, another as his daughter, another for workforces, another as the model minority, another for the state, always in the pull of the annihilating void. The student is, at essence, a note taker. Be grateful. Always be okay. Chase the promise of this for hours. Never complain, never be sick, keep going. Nothing is ever enough. The work goes impossibly on. Is college life normal stress? What would it mean to leave? Strike that. We are finishing our parents' immigration stories. Leaving behind the fact of living. We are not grades. A condition of what can't. Don't feel guilty. Strike that. Drawing the student card in a reading reminds you that student debt extends forward and backward across our collective lifetimes. But ask yourself, what is it you actually owe? Your entire personhood, and then more. We gave you your past, now give us your future. The student urges us to refuse. If schools are a feeder system for churning out good citizens, embrace being a bad citizen. Embrace being a bad subject, a bad student, a bad child, a bad person, a revolutionary. Remember that the Asian American movement was birthed in the fires of student protest, written by students everywhere. So yeah, I hope that is true to student experience. Um, The little fragments that I read 
sort of in the middle of the piece are actually quotes taken verbatim from student submissions, including where I said, strike that. I said that as a kind of uh, auditory version of what I'm seeing on the page, which is an actual strike through, through the words. And I found that so powerful that students wrote things in their submissions and then struck them out <laughs> before giving them to me. Like, what does that mean? Does it mean you're not allowed to say that? Does it mean that you're saying it anyway, but then you have to strike it? So I felt like those spoke to what it means to be a student really powerfully. how your work is so deeply attentive to the needs of students and I've heard you speak about the pedagogy of unwellness and embracing new ways of teaching and learning and I'm wondering if you could speak to that uh, specifically this pedagogy of unwellness yes thank you um, I've always centered students in my teaching but I've increasingly centered them over the years. Um, and it became very clear to me in my first few years of teaching that student life is really hard. And a lot of professors don't realize that or maybe are in denial about that. I'm not sure. But it was very clear to me that my students were struggling and in part because they were Asian American students and my work was looking at Asian American suicide. And so as I was looking at Asian American student suicide, it's undeniable the kinds of struggles that students are going through. Asian American students have some of the highest rates of suicide ideation. So if they're sitting in my classroom, right? These same students, they are struggling. So how can you even have a classroom space while students are struggling with questions of life and death? Well, the only way for me ethically to have a classroom space then is to deal directly with that, right? And so, and to make this, the classroom um, meet the needs of students in that way. That is how to be responsive to students. So being responsive to students to me felt like acknowledging their unwellness and creating courses that actually help them discuss their unwellness and then find ways of caring for themselves and each other 
And that is what ethical teaching became to me. And so I started developing my teaching along this idea of like, if students are unwell and I'm unwell, how, do, how can we be unwell together? And how can the classroom space and the relationships that we build here help us move through the world in all of that unwellness? Not, not necessarily cure us. I can't treat people or cure people, right? I'm not even sure that the, the medical world can do that, but that's definitely not my interest in the classroom space. My interest is how do we actually make space for unwellness that we're not allowed to talk about? How do we make sense of it? And then how do we care for each other in all of that unwellness? Recognizing that I'm unwell, you're unwell. We're unwell in different ways sometimes, but sometimes also very similar ways. And that sort of broke down the um, power relationship and hierarchy between professor and student for me quite a bit in asking that they recognize my unwellness as I recognize their unwellness. And as I worked from that framework, so much for me opened up about learning more about student experience, how, you know, I thought they were unwell. Well, I learned more about how they're unwell as they were able to open up and be vulnerable and talk to me about these things. And then I had to shift and iterate my teaching more, right, to try to think, try to address these new forms of unwellness. Um, the pandemic has really pushed me to dig deep into what a pedagogy of unwellness could and should look like and what creating access and care in response to that unwellness could and should look like because the pandemic has thrown us all right into a crisis of care that helped me better see the needs of students and make me realize that they probably needed this all along, but we hadn't thought about our teaching in the before times necessarily in the same way. Like I was, I wanted to address student need, but it took the pandemic, I feel like, to really, really see um, what basic needs look like and how, and how that has to really be met before we can do anything else in the classroom. I, I feel like I learned from students so much that the relationship I have with students really informs my understanding of how people hurt because students are so earnest about their experience and so willing to examine their experiences and so brave in the work of sharing it and then calling upon change. And so I like to say that students are the canaries in the coal mine. They, they are the ones telling us what's up, what's happening. Um, and they're, ones, they're the ones that most likely are calling for change of conditions, right? That care for ourselves and each other. They're willing to do that work. And so I look to them and their unwellness first and foremost. I'm so appreciative for your care and thoughtfulness. And Students are amazing. <laughs> They're amazing. Oh, yeah. Well, I wanted to speak to this theme that something around an opening to using magic and divination, not mm. just as metaphor, but as a truly affirming practice. Mm -hmm. And I know that magic and divination can trigger people. It can excite people, intrigue people. Some folks feel really at home with these types of ways of knowing or being. And I want to open the floor to you with this because I feel like it can go a lot of different ways. I feel mm -hmm. like it's such a important <laughs> and sometimes challenging topic. 
I think you're totally right that people have all different kinds of responses. I love the words you chose, triggering and exciting, intriguing. Um, I think that actually really does capture uh, uh, the range of experiences when we say magic or divination or um, or religion and spirituality. Each of those words carries all kinds of meaning for people. I like to say, and I've actually always said that I'm a deeply religious person, but I actually don't participate in any kind of organized religion. And that feels strange to people. People tend to use the word religion when they mean organized religious practices. And then they tend to use the word spirituality when they mean not organized. Um, But to me, they're kind of the same. And so I identify as a deeply religious, deeply spiritual person because I, I feel that I ask those kinds of questions of life and I intentionally engage that kind of imagination, the religious imagination, the spiritual imagination in my own life to reflect on what does it mean to be here and what are my kind of uh, ethical callings and commitments in in this world as I move through this world. And for me, those questions are religious questions and magic is another word, um, another construct that some people think is the opposite of religion, which I don't think is true at all. Uh, It's another religious system. And it may, the different forms of magic may or may not resonate with folks historically. Um, But I like to think about engaging on wellness and wellness and meaning as acts of magic, as acts of practice, whether or not it comes out of a particular magical tradition. Uh, My partner's work is on ghosts directly. And so he can tell you all about uh, ghosts and magic and and ghost hunting from from that kind of framework. But for me, I I don't know about ghosts. I know he's all about ghosts, but I, I don't know about ghosts. But I do know that when we ask questions of our own unwellness, and each other's unwellness, and we push ourselves to care, and we do it together, magic happens. And that's very clear to me in the kinds of care that I'm able to witness, and the kinds of healing that I'm able to witness. Healing is magical. Like It doesn't make any rational sense in the ways that we can heal ourselves and heal each other and care for each other. And that to me speaks to kind of the unknowable about our, our lives, right? We strive towards it, and we strive towards doing it together because that's the only way to really not be alone in this process. Mm. Did that make sense? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think I like, I like answered and not answered your question at the same time. (laughs) No, it makes sense. And I, I think I want to keep following this thread with you. Okay because there's something I'm sensing about the loneliness and being alone in this, this yeah, work yeah. or this practice. And I guess hmm, my mind is spinning, but I can't slow it down enough at this moment to pull one thought out. Um, yeah. Well, ma- I mean, magic, and I don't want to, I don't want to, um, reduce it down too much because there's many different magical systems, right? There's many different ways of engaging the world, but so much of it for me is about connection. Mm. 
right connection between people between people and creatures between um the earth right between inhuman and human between different dimensions of our lives right like the, between our understanding of like the imminent world versus the more transcendent world and so it is a ways of trying to connect those things and you know different historical systems connect different things in different ways um so I love you bringing up magic because it helps me actually articulate in another way my work. I like to, I joke that I make magic, but I actually kind of think I do, right? Like Because my work is about connection to each other and to new ways of being with each other. And that feels magical. Like That feels like creation right there. Mm, yeah. I wonder, especially as you are steeped in academia, where magic fits into oh, that institution. Magic <laughs> um, does does not fit into that institution in in very comfortable ways. <laughs> I mean, like my religious studies background, I was allowed to study religion, but you don't do it. <laughs> you're not supposed to do the religion you're supposed to just study it uh, the doing part is not considered academic right when I um, first encountered tarot it was at an academic conference but the tarot wasn't happening in the sessions it was happening at happy hour right after all the academic sessions had finished and it was happening between a lot of drinking drunk academics um, hanging out and wanting to connect to each other and wanting to tell stories and laugh and make meaning and think about the future together. And now, basically, my work is trying to make space for that in the academic space, make space for that kind of thinking and feeling and connection, because why can't academic work also be imbued with that work? Like, there's something very colonialist um, to think that academic has to be completely rational and unfeeling, right? That's like totally, you know, out of the enlightenment, kind of European enlightenment, thinking about knowledge. And knowledge comes from all different sources and, and it's experienced in our bodies in all different kinds of ways. And so now I try to do tarot during academic sessions. Um, so I, I'll tell a little story. I just came back from the um, annual Association for Asian American Studies conference. It was in Denver last week. Um, and it's the first time we've had an in-person conference since 2019, right, since before the pandemic. Um, so there were definitely like academics gone wild. People were very excited to see each other. Lots of squealing and hugging, masked squealing and hugging, uh, which I participated in enthusiastically. <laughs> but one thing that I did that is probably quite different for an academic conference is that I organized a session on um, collective tarot making. So similarly to the student card that was created collectively, uh, I and my partner, Lawrence, organized a session to create two new tarot cards with the participants there a live time around um, two new books that friends of ours published in order to capture those ideas in those books and create another form that those books could live in, in the tarot card that also accesses feeling right, and personhood and ways of being in the world differently. And that doesn't seem like an academic thing, but it's totally an academic thing. And it was such a powerful experience to bring feeling into a space that we don't 
normally think should have feeling or should have magic or should have connection in those ways. So I'm trying, trying to shake it up. (laughs) I appreciate you doing that. That (laughs) feels really refreshing and true. There's something authentic about that to not compartmentalize our humanity and our feeling senses from our rational work, because I don't think we can ever be truly objective. We're bringing our experiences to everything we do. We are molded by our belief systems and our childhoods. And so I think it's kind of ridiculous to imagine that we can be these purely rational beings at times um, and not bring everything else with us. Yeah. And it's a really limited, I think, um, Mm. a limited way of understanding humanity, right? Human experience. Like it's, it's, we are not reducible down to rational thinking. We have many other elements of our human experience and human life. And so how do you do knowledge production that actually accesses all of those realms of your experience? that actually captures a full humanity instead of just this one sliver that we think is rigorous. Rigor. Rigor is the word that I also hate in academia. The idea that it's only rigorous, work is only rigorous if it engages, like you're saying, objective rationality. But I want to argue that there is something called emotional rigor, right? That there is hard emotional work that has to happen and can happen and should happen in academic spaces. There's thinking work, yes, but there's feeling work as well. And there's kind of um, the, the fancy academic word would be like ontological, meaning like ways of being, right? There's being work that can happen and that can be really hard and rigorous as well. It just doesn't look the way that we think rigor is supposed to look. So I wanna expand our ideas about rigor and not limit it simply to, to that kind of rationality and supposed objectivity that you mentioned. And on this thread of magic and academia, I also wonder what your thoughts are around the intersection of magic and science. And I think to some people, this could make a lot of sense. And I think to others, they would think it's blasphemy (laughs) that those two things do not go hand in hand or they don't touch each other. Okay. I love, I love this question. (laughs) Great. I love it. But also I think what you just said really points to the truth of the matter. You said it's blasphemy to put those two things together. And I want to say, who is it blasphemous to? I actually think it's probably more blasphemous to the scientists which then reveals to us that science is also a knowledge system and a system of making sense of the world. And therefore it is also a religion. And this is actually, so so I used to teach an intro, intro to religious studies course many years ago. And that was one of the big questions, like what counts as a religion? What is a religion? And is science a religion? And we'd come back to that question over and over again throughout the semester. And at first, students were like, of course not. Science is the opposite of religion. My atheist students would definitely say that. And then by the end of the semester, it was not so clear cut anymore. If religion is a way of making sense of the world with particular rules. And science has very particular rules, but there are constructed rules about how we understand the world, how we create knowledge, how we access knowledge, how we find it. And so I think magic and science for me are 
two systems of making sense of the world that just use very different rules and very different ways of understanding where knowledge comes from and how we access it and who are kind of agents in that process. I'm not saying I don't believe in science, especially in that this in this moment. <laughs> we have like, you know, a lot of science deniers in this moment. Um, but I do think that we need to think of science as a system of knowledge making. Just like we think of other forms of religion as systems of knowledge making and meaning making. I really like the way you said that systems of knowledge making. I'm going to ruminate on that. I guess these conversations of infiltrating academia and science and pulling apart these systems that are uh, very firm or mm, uh, yeah. tight yeah. in their in their structure. Yeah, and their and their boundaries, right? And, rigid in yes, their boundaries. Yes, rigid. Yeah. That's a great way to say it. And I'm thinking of you speaking a lot of hacking and even yeah. hacking the DSM and how that open an emergency is a type of hacking. And so I just want to kind of explore that a little bit because I was reading that or I was listening to interviews you had used that word and it excited me uh, to be a little subversive and Mm -hmm. to be a bit trickster in the ways we are playing with these systems of knowledge. And so maybe you could start by talking to your thoughts on hacking the DSM. Yeah. Yeah. So I do want to say there's like a whole, I think, field of inquiry that theorizes hacking that I am not accessing and not a very good scholar in that way. Um, But Besides that, I will say that my approach to hacking is actually exactly what you're saying. It's like thinking about kind of received systems of knowledge and questioning them, interrogating them. Like, is this the only way to know something? Is this the only way to make sense of what is happening to us? What are the kinds of constructions and assumptions that are happening in the way that we think we understand the world? And so for mental health, the, the DSM or the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the um, psychiatry's Bible in a way, this is so funny to keep talking about religion, uh, is a construction that, right, that labels all of our disorders and the symptoms and presentations and how you diagnose. And it is not, it cannot be the only way we understand our unwellness. It's, it's to me had, was very clear how limited it is as a way to understand. And so um, self-referential and positivist, if that makes sense, right? Like people created the DSM and it has changed over time. We're currently in the fifth edition. Um, there are things that were considered disorders before that are no longer considered disorders, like homosexuality, right? Being queer is no longer considered a disorder, but it had been for a very long time. And so these are constructions, right, of of human ideas about what counts as pathological and what doesn't. And not to say that unwellness doesn't actually exist. Of course, unwellness exists. But the ways that we label it, the ways that we measure it, these are constructions. These are made up by people. And they're, for me, only useful if they're useful, right? They're only useful if they're actually helping us understand something better and giving us better tools. They're not um, sacred in of themselves. We keep using religion words. So the the DSM is not sacred to me. Uh, And so I wanted to hack it, meaning 
what does it look like to put the authority back into the hands of those who are being diagnosed, right? Like psychologists, psychiatrists are the so-called experts of mental health. I'm not denying they have some knowledge, definitely have some knowledge, but are they the only people who can be experts on what unwellness and wellness look like? That, that seems absurd if they're the only experts. Experts. So what about the other experts? Like people, like humanity scholars, like artists, like writers, like survivors. How would they find language for their experiences? So then we hacked the DSM, meaning we pretended that we tore out all the pages and put in new ones. And the new ones that I put in are by different experts. So by the artists, writers, humanity scholars, survivors, organizers, community folks, trying to make sense of their world using different language than we're normally allowed to use. And so, yeah, it, it, it is a kind of irreverence. It is a kind of like trickster approach uh, because I don't think that any institution is sacred and everything should be questionable. And it only is helpful if it is helpful. If it's not helpful, then we should definitely question it. Mm-hmm. Oh, Mimi, this has been such a fun and uh, deep and meaningful conversation. And I'm really appreciative of all the places that you're able to go with us today. So thank you so much for your time and your expansiveness. This was so lovely. Thank you so much. And yes, thank you for your expansiveness, leading the, the conversation in so many directions and helping me too to kind of tie a bunch of different things together. It was really lovely and wonderful. Mm. Awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of For the Wild Podcast. The music you heard today is by Jeffrey Silverstein, Samara Chisando, and Grief is a River. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Ali Constantine, Erica Ekram, Emily Guerra, and Julia Jackson.